Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host, and this is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, March 15th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. The live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. And if you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to monitor that and periodically answer any questions as they arise. Um, the weekly podcast, uh, sorry, the weekly live stream, uh, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news, what's been going on uh, at, the, at the court in the past week and what's coming up uh, next week. So here's what I plan to cover today. A little later in the live stream, I'm going to preview three cases that are set for argument on Monday through Wednesday of next week. I'm also going to talk uh, briefly about a fourth case that had been scheduled for argument but has just uh, a few days ago been removed from the March argument calendar. Um, but before we get to that, uh, let's start with the latest uh, news from the court, starting with uh, two death penalty stay applications. Um, this week. So there were two executions uh, scheduled for tonight, March 15th. And when there are executions, um, that uh, pretty much uh, inevitably means last minute stay applications to the Supreme Court in an attempt to uh, to get the uh, the execution postponed or or um, or, or uh, eliminated. Um, one of the executions tonight was in Georgia, the other in Alabama. Um, and I'll I'll talk a little about each of these two cases. The Alabama case um, was a, a man named Michael Eggers who had been convicted of a, uh, a, a murder in the year 2000 of a, by, of a uh, former employer. Uh, it was a, a pretty brutal killing by beating and strangulation. Um, and there had been uh, litigation uh, over the years in this case. In 2015, um, his uh, federal habeas corpus petition was denied. This was in federal district court. Um, the, his, his former counsel uh, filed an appeal. However, um, Eggers filed his own handwritten motions to the court asking the court to terminate his counsel uh, and asking the court to dismiss the appeal. Um, the court later had a competency hearing uh, for Eggers to, to determine whether he was competent to uh, to, to do what he was asking, competent to waive his appeals. Um, at that hearing, he said that he he withdrew and waived all his future appeals in their entirety, and the judge ruled that he was competent to do this. The judge, this is a quote from the district judge, Eggers had made. Eggers has made a rational choice to dismiss his appointed counsel and abandon his appeal. Eggers has the right to make that decision, provided he is competent to do so, and the evidence indicates that he is. So, um, as far as Alabama sees it, the district court found him uh, competent to waive his rights to appeal, and basically that's the end of the matter unless um, his attorneys can show that the judge was was clearly wrong in this determination of of competency. Um, now his attorneys uh, filed a a their um, stay application at the Supreme Court, uh, kind of giving giving a different take on Eggers and his actions and they they discuss his uh, his apparently uh his long history of paranoid delusions um they say that Eggers for years has believed there's been a wide ranging conspiracy against him that this uh conspiracy caused him to commit the murder that he he's convicted of and and that this conspiracy is very wide ranging including various uh um government officials and including his prior and current attorneys um and as a result he has he has repeatedly been um uh, 
since since his conviction, he has he has uh, not wanted to be represented by um, by counsel. He's there's been a, a few different uh, attorneys that have represented him, and he's periodically requested that they not represent him because he has no trust in his attorneys. Um, and uh, his attorneys say that he has made uh, these types of requests to the court multiple times that that that, uh, that he requests the court that he be executed that he give up on all his future appeals and, and he be executed uh, according to his attorneys that's happened uh, no fewer than nine times um, but they say that 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 uh, they they ask the court to kind of look past this and say that what's what's really going on here is you have uh, a delusional client who wa- really wants to represent himself he wants to be represented um, he, you know he wants his defense to center around um, these uh, claims of uh, persecution and conspiracy. Um, and uh, what he really wants is to be able to raise those issues. It's not that he wants to be executed. Um, and they argue that, that when um, he, he has uh, routinely resumed his litigation um, after these requests that they just go ahead and execute him, and that shows that he, he really, it's just his frustration with, with not being able to uh, litigate on his own terms. Um However, uh, the the uh, as Alabama points out, since this competency hearing, um, he he has been pretty consistent in asking for expedited execution and rejecting any assistance from his attorneys. Um, and so that that's kind of the the uh, the state of his 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 application um, to the court. Now, um, this um, stay application was denied uh, earlier this evening and that execution did go forward at about 7:30 p.m. tonight. Um now just as a side issue, uh this is in Alabama and if you've been listening to these uh these weekly live streams, you may remember that just uh 3 weeks ago this is this is the same state that had a what's been described as a botched execution of of Doyle Ham. Um he was uh, set to be executed 3 weeks ago but the execution was um aborted late into the night when the state uh was unable to find a, uh, a usable vein for lethal injection after multiple attempts. Um, but, uh, they, uh, they went ahead tonight with the, uh, execution of, of Eggers. Um, Eggers had not brought any sort of, uh, a cruel and unusual punishment claim, um, in this court. So that wasn't at issue in this case. So that execution did go forward. Now, the second execution scheduled tonight, this is out of Georgia, was a man named Carlton Gary. Uh, now he was convicted, uh, as a, a serial killer. He was, he was actually referred to in the press as the stocking strangler of Columbus, Georgia. Um, and he was, he was convicted, uh, in, in 1986, he was convicted and sentenced to death for the rapes and murders of three elderly women. Um, however, he was, uh, believed to have committed uh, a number of additional, um, similar crimes, um, at least 11 and possibly more, uh, similar, uh, attacks, uh, of which, um, at least, uh, eight, uh, ended in, in deaths, um, as well as a few survivors. Um, and, and these, these, these happened in upstate New York, upstate New York, where he had previously lived. And then later in, uh, in Georgia, the Columbus, Georgia area. Um, now his claim, uh, that he brought before the Supreme Court is an actual innocence claim. He claims, uh, his, uh, attorneys claim that he is actually innocent of, of these crimes, that he was misidentified as the serial killer. And, uh, the attorneys have raised various, um, claims about, uh, about, um, DNA testing that they, they say, 
uh, excludes him from certain of the crimes and the state had a, had a, uh, the state's theory was that all of these crimes were committed by one single person and they could show that he was, uh, at least of, as to, um, as to one of them that he was, uh, he, he was excluded as the perpetrator. Uh, they also, uh, bring claims about the government's, uh, destruction of evidence, um, that they, that they say could have been, uh, uh, could have provided additional DNA evidence to, to show his, his, um, um, his innocence. Uh, now the government, uh, comes back, uh, and, and basically, uh, just disputes very, uh, heavily, uh, this, um, uh, this attempt to, to, uh, to disclaim, uh, responsibility for the, the murders. Uh, and they, they go through DNA evidence that ties him to multiple victims in, in, in different crimes, fingerprints, uh, left at multiple different sites, the killings, which were, had uh, very, very similar, um, uh, circumstances and tracked his movements from city to city through three different cities. And, and also that, that in, he, he, uh, tied himself to, uh, the locations of some of the murders by admitting to, to burglaries in certain locations. Um, and, and so, so it's basically just a, a factual dispute, um, between the, the, uh, the two sides. Um, there's ad- additional, uh, in press reports about, uh, Carlton Gary. Um, there's also uh, information of, of, of additional uh, a match since he's been in prison um, to a, a, an additional murder um, that that was not originally included among those that were uh, that he was um, tied to at his original trial. So, so you know, according uh, at least to some sources, there's the case is even uh, stronger than the evidence that was available. Um, uh, the the cases that were tied to him at trial, but uh, that's that's the basic idea. It's a f- actual innocence, a factual claim. Now, as of the start of uh, this live stream recording, um, the court had not yet taken any action on that stay application, so that was uh, still um, an open uh, stay application. And uh, as far as the latest uh, news accounts, the execution had not gone forward yet. So that's that's just one. Uh, it's a wait. Wait and see um, what's what's going on with that, and it's it's very possible that soon, possibly by the time this live stream is over, um, that will have been uh, resolved one way or the other. Um, but uh, but as of right now, uh, that that was uh, still uh, a pending uh, application. Um, now, if you've been listening to these uh, uh, weekly live streams, you, you'll notice this is a recurring um, topic has been these uh, death. Uh, Death penalty uh, stay applications, and I've been uh, covering each of them as they come up, uh, partially because, um, despite the the kind of low profile of this as compared to the courts, the argued cases, the the courts, the main kind of uh, docket that everyone thinks about uh, as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, um, these these death penalty cases are just a, a routine and recurring part of the court's work and make up a significant part of the court's workload, especially since these are you know typically last minute. Uh, emergency applications that uh, kind of uh, may require justices to just drop everything on short notice and, and really focus on these um, uh, death sentences. So, you know, I think it's worth uh, covering these because that kind of the, the role they play in the court's work uh, has to inevitably shape the way the justices view capital punishment. And that's, it's been cited by, by, you know, some commentators as, as a, a theory behind why certain justices uh, who had been on the court for a uh, considerable period of um, turned increasingly uh, against capital punishment as they've been on for a long period of time. And, and one theory behind that is that the, the kind of relentless uh, stream of these uh, stay applications on death penalty cases um, wears down on them over time. So it's just a, 
it's an it's uh, an interesting less uh, uh, less prominent aspect of uh, of the court's workload, and of course, occasionally one of these uh, stay applications uh, turns into a uh, an argued case on the court's uh, the court's merits docket. Uh, one example of that was uh, the case of Madison v. Alabama. It's a cruel and unusual punishment case. That was a um, uh, there was a stay application that we discussed on the live stream back in January, and the court did stay that execution, and then later granted that case, and that'll be argued um, in uh, next year's term, so uh, probably in October next year. So that'll be a, a full argued case. So occasionally these death stays uh, turn into uh, real cases uh, on the court's docket with uh, uh, longer term impacts. Um, so moving on from that. Uh, just want to talk quickly about a few other uh, developments at the court. One is uh, not a uh, um, not a legal development, uh, but but just a, a, another milestone. So today, uh, March fifteenth, as we record this, is Justice Ginsburg's eighty fifth birthday. Um, she is uh, the oldest current member of the court. Um, at eighty five years old, she's also currently the the sixth oldest serving justice ever. Um, and that includes, uh, the, the, the older justices include the oldest two were Oliver Wendell Holmes and John Paul Stevens, both of whom retired at age 90. Um, but she's, she's up there as one of the oldest ever serving justices. An interesting, just little, little, um, comparison. She's actually only three years younger than Justice O'Connor. Um, Justice O'Connor turns 88, uh, later, uh, later this month. So she's only three years younger than Justice O'Connor. Uh, Justice O'Connor retired from the court more than a decade ago, um, but Justice Ginsburg is, uh, is uh, still there and still at it. Um, there's uh, Justice Ginsburg is, um, I, I believe, at, at present she's she's the most active um, public speaker of uh, of all the current justices on the court. She's been on a public speaking tour lately. Has made appearances in various cities all over, um, and uh, she's she's been she. It makes clear that she really enjoys her her high public profile, and she's expressly said uh, many many times that she has no intention of leaving the court anytime uh, soon. She she's she has said uh, on many occasions that she intends to keep doing it as long as she can. She feels that she can do the job full steam. Um, but you know, as she uh, gets up there in age, uh, you know, eventually um, it will no longer be her choice, just uh, inevitability, and and uh, this birthday milestone um, kind of uh, just brings that uh, um, brings that uh, to uh, public attention uh, once again. Um, but moving on from that, one other development, uh, a case that was uh, had been scheduled for oral argument. There's a, a case called Salt River Project Agricultural Improvement and Power District, the Tesla Energy Operations. Now, this is a case, it's it's uh, it's kind of a, a technical case about the right to appeal certain decisions in antitrust cases. And this was a case that was brought by by Solar City, uh, which is wholly owned by by Tesla, um the the uh the car company, uh, Solar City brought this action against the uh, the local power district, which is a government entity, um, and they brought this uh, antitrust action. Now, uh, government uh, government entities are immune from certain antitrust actions under something called the state the state action immunity doctrine. Now, the the court uh, in in this case, the district court denied the government's motion to dismiss on state action immunity grounds. 
and the government uh, appealed this decision. So appealed that denial. They said that they that the, this case should have been thrown out because they were immune. Now the question that this case raises uh, raised to the Supreme Court was was just a procedural question. It was the question of whether this denial of immunity was immediately appealable. Now, there's there's a rule. Um, and the federal courts normally only what's referred to as final judgments are appealable. So it's kind of um, intermediate decisions uh, during the course as a, as a case kind of uh, works its way along in trial court. Intermediate decisions aren't appealable. It's only when it's final, when it's something that would decide the case finally, that's appealable. There are some exceptions for certain immunity doc- uh, decisions, something called the uh, collateral order um, doctrine. Uh and so the dispute here was whether this falls within those exceptions and whether this was uh, appealable. So it's, it's just kind of this, uh, just a technical procedural issue. Um, and it had originally been scheduled for oral argument on Monday, March 19th. So this up- upcoming Monday. However, just last week, so Thursday, March 8th, a, there was a, a joint letter, uh, from counsel for both sides in this case where they informed the the court that they were uh, basically deep in settlement discussions and uh, attempting to to work toward a settlement of the case, and that uh, a settlement of the case would um, result in the dismissal of the lawsuit. So the court reacted to that quickly on Friday. The court removed this case from the March argument calendar. On Monday, this case was added in to the April argument calendar. So they so they they took it off. March's calendar moved it to April. They added it to a day that had two arguments already made another uh, three argument day on the April calendar. Um, but I think the expectation right now is that, that these parties are trying to settle this case and that likely this case will be gone before April rolls around. But uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, the several, some discussions uh, could, you know, could always uh, potentially fall through. Um, so as we get closer to April, we'll see if this, this case disappears completely uh, or remains um, on the argument calendar. Uh, so that's about it. It's been uh, pretty quiet at the court uh, this week. The court has been uh, uh, hasn't sat uh, for for a little while. Um, so there have been uh, no big orders lists, no new cases granted in the past week. Um, so that brings us to uh, oral arguments. Oral arguments resume next week for the the, the first week of the March oral argument sitting, and. Um, it's a light week. They originally had, as I said, four cases granted, but since one of those is, uh, is now, uh, off the calendar, then we have three cases. So it's a, it's a light oral argument week, but, uh, I'll, I'll walk through each of those, um, three cases on the calendar. And, and again, if anyone has any questions, please leave them in the live stream at any time and I can, uh, uh, try and address them as I go. So the first case of the week, the Monday's case is called Sveen v. Mellon. Um, now, this is uh, the, the underlying dispute in this case is uh, is about a life insurance policy and and who is the uh, who's the beneficiary of a life insurance policy. But the legal issue that this case raises is, is a very unusual one. This is a case brought under the contract clause of the U.S. Constitution. Um, I'll come back to that in in a minute and explain why that's a, a very uh, unusual claim. Um, but first, just really briefly, here's here's the facts of the case. It's pretty, it's very simple. So th- this involved a, a a couple, a Minnesota couple named Mark Sveen and Kay Mellon, and they married in 1997. And in 1998, Sveen added Mellon, uh, so his wife at the time, as uh, the, the uh, beneficiary on his life insurance policy. 
Now, uh, so that was 1998. Now, fast forward to 2007. In that year, uh, Sveen and Mellon divorced. And then a few years later, in 2011, Sveen died. Um, now, at the time of his death, uh, his ex-wife was still listed as the beneficiary on his life insurance policy. He had made no changes to the policy, and she was still listed as the beneficiary. Um, here's... here's uh, Here's the, the 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 wrinkle that's added to this case. In 2002, so that's 2002 is after um, this couple was married and after uh, the wife was added to the the life insurance policy, um, but before the divorce and death. So this is in 2002. Minnesota passed a law um, that's referred to as a revocation on divorce law applying to uh, life insurance beneficiaries. And what this law does, and these laws exist in a number of states, is they they say that um, uh, upon a divorce, the ex-spouse is automatically basically removed as a beneficiary on a life insurance policy. And the theory behind this law, the kind of the policy idea behind a law like this, is that many people never take the time to update insurance beneficiary information after they have a, a policy created. Um, the theory is that, that the, the, um, the theory is that most people who get divorced probably don't intend to keep their ex-spouse as a beneficiary. So the state wants to create a new default rule that's intended to, to better track, uh, the, the actual intentions of, uh, of most, um, uh, life insurance policy holders who are divorced. Um, now this, this doesn't, um, this is just a default rule. So now this can be overridden. So if someone gets divorced, but they want their ex-spouse to remain as the beneficiary of a life insurance policy, then they just, by re-adding that, um, beneficiary after the divorce, uh, that, that would override this and then they would remain a beneficiary. Also, if the policy had specific language, that uh, said that um, even in the event of divorce, this won't be changed. That would override um, the that uh, uh, that law. And also, if there's a specific divorce decree uh, from from the uh, the court uh, in the uh, in the divorce settlement, um, that would override this. So so it's just a default rule in in case no one has taken any of those specific actions that says that when the divorce happens, the spouse is just removed as a matter of law as the beneficiary. So. As a result of this law, um, uh, Sveen's children, um, so it's Ashley and Anton Sveen, uh, argued that they should be actually the beneficiaries of this life insurance policy and not uh, the uh, the ex-wife. Um, and, th- and again, this 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 approach is a, a pretty common approach when it comes to uh, life insurance. There's depending on how you count, somewhere in the ballpark of 26 to 28 states that have a similar law. Um, and similar actions are taken uh, by courts in a individual case by case determination. Uh, so courts will sometimes determine that the life insurer, even in states that don't have these law laws, that the uh, life insurance policy holder um, would not have intended uh, to, to keep that person as the beneficiary. And there's also uh, this. This is talking about life insurance policies, but there's a very similar rule for for wills for beneficiaries of a will when a will is left to a spouse. Um, and there's a near universal rule across the states that, uh, that if, uh, if someone has not changed their, uh, if, if a will is, is drawn up during a marriage and is not, um, not revised after a divorce, that there's an assumption that the, uh, the spouse will be removed as a beneficiary. Um, and in fact, this Minnesota statute is based on, uh, something called the Uniform Probate Code. 
and the uniform codes are, are these are these are projects. There's there's quite a, a number of them, but they're, they're basically they're efforts by experts in various fields of law to create um, kind of best practices statutes, model statutes, in the hopes that these will be adopted by states across the country and create kind of uh, a degree of uniformity from state to state. And this particular um, the uniform probate code, this particular provision, um, the, the Minnesota statute was based on a provision of this uniform probate, probate code. And that same provision has also been adopted by uh, many of the other states that have uh, a similar law. So, so the, the, Point point of all this is just that Minnesota, the Minnesota law here is a, is a, a pretty standard approach. It's not universal, but it's a pretty standard approach. It's not a it's not an extreme outlier. Um, now, uh, no, there is a there is a, a, a counterpoint to this uh, this this policy argument, and it showed up in an uh, amicus brief filed by the uh, the Women's Law Project. Uh, who filed a, a brief along with another, a number of other, uh, mostly women's organizations, women's rights organizations. And, um, that, that brief actually argues against this on policy grounds, arguing that, uh, revocation on divorce, um, statutes have a, a disparate impact on women, uh, for just for the reasons that men are more likely to be higher wage earners, they're more likely to carry large insurance policies, they're more likely to have um, employer-sponsored ins- life insurance policies and things like that. Women are more likely to um, have uh, longer, they, women have longer life expectancies and are more likely to be the beneficiaries who collect on these policies. And by uh, putting these in place, they're, they're, uh, they, these, these laws are generally detrimental to women. And they further argue that the, the assumption that it's based on that, that people would not want um, the ex-spouse to remain as a beneficiary on their life insurance policy is based on what they describe as kind of outmoded assumptions about divorce. They argue that there's increasingly uh, amicable divorces and that people may want to provide for an ex-spouse uh, for the reason of protecting uh, protecting uh, children that they have with those spouses. So, you know, they argue on a policy grounds that this uh, um, this assumption is not a good one and doesn't make sense. So that's just to kind of present the uh, other side of the policy, uh, but as I said, it is a, a very common approach that many states uh, take. So here's here's where the the problem comes up in this case. That law, as I as I noted, was enacted in 2002, which was after the insurance policy was already in place. So the claim that's uh, that's being raised here, uh, this is a claim by the um, by Mellon, who's the uh, ex uh, spouse. Um, the claim is that this law. When applied retroactively, so when applied to policies that were written before the law was put into place, uh, it violates the contract clause of the, of the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. Now, the contract clause, uh, the relevant portion of, uh, of the, the contract clause, it says, no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. Um, and the argument here is that this is this is impairing an, the obligation of contracts in direct violation of this of this uh, clause, and uh, therefore is unconstitutional at least as applied retroactively. So uh, I'm going to step back and give kind of a brief, real quick history of the contract clause. So the contract clause is part of the 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 uh, the actual Constitution. Um, it was prompted by concerns about debt relief laws that were passed by various states during the post-revolutionary war period and the Articles of Confederation period. And these were viewed by, by many as, um, as irresponsible policy, uh, and, and that, uh, that, that, that left, that, um, 
hurt the credit worthiness of of the, the states uh, by by uh, eliminating uh, um, certain uh, debts that had been incurred. And the uh, idea was that that the this contract clause, that this prohibition on impairing the obligation of contracts, would help to promote investment by making contracts more secure. People would feel more secure about um, about not having their uh, their their um, debts canceled. Um, and during the early period of the United States, this was enforced by the court. Um, however, starting in the late 19th century, there were increasingly court-made exceptions to the contract law clause. And, and the key case here is a 1934 case called Home Building and Loan Association v. Blaisdell. So now this is 1934, so this is during the Great Depression. And what happened was in the... the, the uh, the law at issue in this case was a state moratorium on mortgage foreclosures. And um, the the court upheld that. Um, it was justified in part as uh, an emergency measure and, and partly because it was a temporary. It was a temporary moratorium on mortgage foreclosures. Um, the argument at the time was that this was uh, an economic emergency and in order to, to uh, stave off just more um, devastation from uh, just rampant foreclosures that this moratorium was necessary. Um, but it was viewed by many as largely eliminating the contract clause as a um, – as a, uh, a an effective uh, barrier to uh, the uh, state infringement on contracts, and basically at, the, at this point, um, the the rule was that the, the contract was okay if if the legislation's addressed to a legitimate end and the measures taken are reasonable and appropriate to that end. That's some language from the court. So uh, this this uh, contra- uh, this doctrine kind of developed over time. The, the modern test is is a, a three part test. Asking first whether the law causes a substantial impairment of contract rights, and then so so if it's a not if it's not deemed a substantial impairment, then that's considered not a violation to begin with. But if it causes a substantial impairment, then the question is whether the law serves a significant and legitimate public purpose. Public purpose, and this includes things such as the remedying of broad and general social or economic problems, and it asks whether the means of serving that purpose are reasonable and appropriate. Um, and it's considered to be a pretty uh, forgiving test. It's, uh, it, it, it's uh, considered to be a test that doesn't um, have a lot of uh, um, force in restricting um, state action that may impair a contract. So um, the the arguments here um, is uh, the the, argue, the, argue, the contract clause argument um, has a, a couple pieces to it. First, there, there's an argument um, from the original meaning of the of the Contract clause, uh, and this is this is a, a direct attack on this Blaisdell 1934 precedent, arguing basically that that case should be uh, overruled or or cut back, um, arguing that the the original understanding of the contract clause is clear and obvious. There was a long history of case law, um, and also comparing it to other restrictions in the same um, in the same portion of the Constitution, the, part of the same provision. Uh, the the uh, more of the, the sentence, which includes the the contract clause, actually says that no state shall pass any bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of, of nobility. So that that uh, the other provisions of that uh, of that clause are still uh, enforced um, fairly strictly. It's only the uh, the contract clause portion of that that has been uh, watered down. The the argument is. Um, and and the, the argument further is that the modern doctrine 
uh, that, that three-part test I described allows basically the exact type of laws that the contract law was, clause was intended to prohibit. Um, and it allows favoring particular political interests at the expense of private parties' contractual rights, which was the motivation behind the contract clause. So that's, that's this kind of originalist argument. And it, and it's a, it's a pretty bold argument arguing basically for overturning, um, case law that, that goes back to, to 1934. It's a, it's a pretty, um, uh, broad, uh, um, bold, uh, argument. Um, but, uh, beyond that, the, the, uh, the, the, um, Mellon who's challenging this under the contract clause argues that if the court's not willing to go that far, that they should at least, um, strengthen the doctrine somewhat. Um, it, one method or one means would be to place private contracts, contracts between private parties like this insurance contract on the same footing as contracts with, with, um, with, uh, with the state. Uh, right now, um, the, the courts do have a higher standard, uh, to allow the state to impair its own contracts. And this is, uh, you know, motivated in part by concerns about opportunistic self-dealing if the state is going to enter into contracts with a private party and then pass laws that change the terms of that contract that it's a party to. Um, so there's, there's kind of higher uh, standards. Um, and they also, um, um, uh, finally make the argument that even under the modern contracts clause doctrine, this should be uh, struck down as going too far. The argument is that the government interest here is pretty minimal. This is just a default rule. The government is not, um, d- doesn't claim that it has a uh, an interest in preventing uh, insurance payments from going to an ex-spouse. They're just changing the default rule. And also that they haven't, they presented any, the government has no empirical evidence of policy policyholder preferences that would justify this new default rule. Uh, um, rule, and so this is just not a significant and legitimate public purpose. Um, and they also argue that that under the uh, the criterion, uh, whether this is a substantial impairment of the contract rights, they argue that that the, this um, provision by canceling uh, the by uh, you know, removing the named beneficiary of the policy directly alters the core subject matter of a pre-existing contract so this is not just some minor feature of the contract the whole point of a life insurance policy is to provide money to the designated beneficiary and that's what's being changed here so they say that even under the modern doctrine this just goes goes too far um on the other hand the uh the um Seen, and this is the the children who who are, are seeking to uh, to have this uh, this law enforced. They they have a number of arguments about about why this should be deemed okay and not contrary to the uh, the contract clause. And first, they they make some kind of practical arguments. They say that this legislation is really not targeted at contracts; it's targeted toward divorce proceedings. And they say that divorce courts routinely exercise power over beneficiary determinations, even in the absence of statutes like this. And this is just setting a default rule for for how um, divorce courts, how, how these uh, courts are going to uh, um, uh, uh, treat these contracts. Um, the, the counter argument to that, on the other hand, is is that uh, the contract clause is, is uh, uh, it's well settled that contract clauses applies only to legislation, not case-by-case judicial determination. So these are just two different things. It's not a, a uh, they, they shouldn't be compared. That's the argument on the other side. Um, another argument for why this is okay is, is the, the, uh, Sveen, the Sveens, they argued that the obligation is not actually impaired. They say that it says, uh, um, the contract clause, uh, 
protects against uh, impairment of obligations. And they say the obligation here is on the insurance company. It's the obligation to pay money. And the insurance company still has that obligation. So this is not like a debt cancellation. This is not getting someone out of paying money. Um, it's just designating a different beneficiary. Um, and also uh, they argue that it's just a default rule that's easily overridden. So the only... Um, the only real impairment here is just requiring a little bit more paperwork and just uh, the requirement to file a little additional paperwork to keep a, ben- a, a, a designate a beneficiary designation is not a uh, uh, not a severe impairment. Um, they also argue that, that the retroactive application of this doesn't really have any any real reliance interests. No one was entering into a life insurance policy depending on the fact that uh if they got divorced it it would uh it, it would still go to their their spouse nobody's thinking about that when they're entering into a a uh, life insurance policy and, and the fact that they can always change the beneficiary at any time means that uh it, it, there's not a real strong reliance interest and they are actually they argue that actually the reliance interest should be seen to run the other way given that you know this this law was in effect in 2002 and by the time Sveen died um it, 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 this challenge came, you know, after his death. So Sveen had every reason to believe that the revocation law would, uh, would take effect since that had been in place since 2002. And if he had looked into this, then he might have, um, um, he, he would have known, uh, that, that, that this, uh, that his beneficiary designation by, uh, under this revocation law would no longer, uh, take effect and might, and that might have induced him to not bother to take the time to change the beneficiary. That's, that's uh, kind of the argument they make there. Um, and they also argue that just this doesn't really implicate the special interest concerns that motivated the contract clause, this clause. There's no, um, uh, motive, there's no, uh, interest group or, or, uh, political faction that's, uh, motivated to, to, uh, to, um, that's on one or the other side of the, of this, uh, this particular case. Um, so th- those are some of the, the basic, uh, um, basic arguments. There's, there's, uh, there's a lot of arguments going back and forth, but, but the, the big question here will be whether there's any interest in the court, uh, on the court in reconsidering its contract clause precedent. Uh, is there, is there anyone on the court that's interested in this, uh, that's kind of very, um, uh, uh, the radical step of, of reconsidering uh, the Blaisdell 1934 precedent, or uh, or in some way narrowing the doctrine, or or will this be just a narrower case about the correct application of the modern contract clause um, doctrine? Uh, so that uh, that's what remains to be seen in this case as it's argued next week. So let's move on to Tuesday next week, and the, the second case the court will be hearing is called National Institute of Family and Life Advocates v. Becerra, um, and uh, this this is the highest profile case of the upcoming week, um, and it, it uh, because it uh, it touches on the always um, always contentious, always uh, hot button uh, issue of abortion, um, and this is a First Amendment challenge to the California's uh, Reproductive Fact Act. Um, now that act, this, this, the FACT Act, it imposes certain disclosure requirements on what are referred to as crisis pregnancy centers. Now these crisis pregnancy centers are um, pro-life centers that, um, among other things, counsel women uh, about alternatives to abortion. Um, so the the uh, the party in this case, National Institute of Family Life, Family and Life Advocates, or NIFLA for short, uh, is a nonprofit pro-life organization. Uh, whose members include um, 
pregnancy centers across the country, but including about 130 pregnancy centers in California. Um, and the the law involves two different categories of these uh, uh, centers. There's what's referred to as licensed centers. Now, these licensed centers are medical facilities. These are licensed medical facilities, and they um, generally they provide uh, certain like prenatal prenatal medical care. So they may have things like med- uh, pregnancy testing, prenatal vitamins, ultrasound examinations, other types of clinical services. Not- notably, they do not provide generally they do not provide contraception or abortion related services. Um, and they also may provide other non-medical services as well. But those are the licensed facilities. The other category are what are referred to as the unlicensed facilities. Now, these are centers that provide a variety of um, services to pregnant women, including pregnancy test kits, also maternity clothing, baby clothing and supplies, uh, educational materials, prenatal or parenting educational pr- materials, things like that, but they don't provide actual medical services and they're not a, a um, not a licensed medical facility. So the Reproductive Fact Act um, is a California law that was enacted in 2015 and it imposes disclosure requirements, uh, different disclosure requirements on the licensed and unlicensed crisis pregnancy centers. So the licensed crisis pregnancy centers for those it um, it requires a disclosure notice, um, and this disclosure notice has the following language. It says, California has public programs that provide immediate, free, or low-cost access to comprehensive family planning services, including all FDA-approved methods of contraception, prenatal care, and abortion for eligible women. To determine whether you qualify, contact the county social services office at, and then the phone number is, is provided. And it's required that this has to be conspicuously posted in large type in the waiting room or provided individually to each client at one of these licensed um, crisis pregnancy centers. Um, the unlicensed crisis pregnancy centers, there's a, a different requirement for those. They're required to have a disclosure that says... This facility is not lic- is not licensed as a medical facility by the state of California and has no licensed medical provider who provides or directly supervises the provision of services. And that notice has to be at the entrance to the center in the waiting area and and this is a uh, important it has to be included in any advertisement for the services of that uh, crisis pregnancy center. Um and uh, and one uh, fact that the that the um the petitioner, the the, the pregnancy centers, uh, make a lot of in this is that that has to be included in in every what are referred to as the threshold languages. So those are um, foreign languages spoken by a sufficient number of people in the uh, county uh, in in which this uh, center is located. Um, which in some county, in Los Angeles County, apparently there's up to 13 different languages that this. Um, notice would have to be listed on, and that would have, would have to be included in every advertisement. Um, for these uh, uh, pregnancy centers, um, and and these uh, disclosures have to be provided in large or more prominent text um, on the advertisements. Uh, now, a crucial um, fact that the that, that uh, also comes up in this uh, litigation is that there's an exemption from these um, disclosure requirements for sil- facilities that participate in California's Family Pact program, and that's a, a state program that. Um, Participation in that program requires facilities to provide um, contraceptive uh, services, and due to the nature of those services, the none of the pro-life facilities um, participate in this uh, family pact 
program. So, so the, there's an exemption that applies to a, a lot of, um, uh, facilities that you could describe as uh, pro-choice pregnancy services. Um, but, uh, because of their non-participation in the family pact program, the exemption would not apply generally to pro-life, um, organizations. So, uh, the the basic issue in this case is that the the pregnancy centers argue that this is a this is compelled speech uh, that's in violation of their First Amendment rights. They're being forced to convey a message um, to their uh, their their clients uh, that's at odds with with their beliefs. Um, a lot of this case comes down to very different framings uh, by the two sides of um, of of what's really going on here. What's the facts at issue? So. Um, the, uh, the, the, these crisis pregnancy centers, they, they argued that, that basically this fact act represents, um, hostility, uh, by the lawmakers, um, the state of California toward the pro-life mission of these centers. So they, they argued that, that basically this is just an attempt to undermine charities that are providing free services to pregnant women, um, just solely on the basis of hostility to their pro-life mission and that they, they've, uh, specifically designed this law to target um, pro-life organizations and, and either compromise their mission or, uh, or severely, uh, limit their ability to, um, to advertise themselves to, uh, to customers. Um, but the, the framing by the supporters of this, uh, fact act is, is quite different. They, they argue that in fact these crisis pregnancy centers are, um, engaged in, in deliberately misleading conduct and they say that there's a there's a, a a routine practice of crisis pregnancy centers of by by through their um their language and through the way that they design their clinics into uh deceiving women into believing that they're um they're entering a, a facility where they they can be provided with a full range of reproductive health services including perhaps abortions and contraception um and and uh basically luring people in on on these uh false assumptions or false premises and uh and perhaps making them believe that other services are not uh available uh when at a, a different facility uh those abortion services would be available so they they argued that really the the, the purpose of this as fact act is to to counter this um deceptive and misleading behavior by the crisis pregnancy centers um, the legal arguments in this case uh, run along a few different tracks, and one of the most interesting ones that will be interesting to see because it's an area that's not really well fleshed out in the Supreme Court's pre- case law is is the concept of professional speech. Um, so the argument is made by supporters of the FACT Act that um, in many contexts, the government requires professionals as part of a, uh, a professional um, uh client provider relationship to provide certain information as part of the provision of services. And they uh, um, point to things like attorneys who have various disclosure requirements to clients about uh, fees and other, other, other things. And also medical informed consent laws where physicians uh, before providing uh, uh, any of a, a large number of different uh, services to patients must give informed consent um must obtain informed consent, which means providing certain information, which is sometimes specified by the government, the information that they're required to provide. Um, and the the issue here is that, that this professional speech uh, concept as a kind of an exception, a special category of speech is not really well defined 
um, by the Supreme Court's case law. And lower courts have recognized this as kind of a distinct category of speech and have pointed to certain Supreme Court cases as supporting that. But the Supreme Court itself has not really defined or explained the scope of this. And there's, you know, arguments made by the the uh, uh, these pregnancy centers here that the court should not do that, that their, their existing case law treating professional speech, uh, is just as protected as other types of, uh, of, of speech, um, is, is sufficient and shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be, uh, changed. They also argue that in the, that to the extent that there is a different treatment of professional speech, it's only in much narrower contexts where there's, where that, that language, uh, that the is, is tailored to the particular professional uh, relationship and professional expertise being conveyed by doctors or lawyers or other professionals. And here it's just generic advertisement of state services that are provided elsewhere. Um, so they, they argue that this just doesn't, doesn't fit under that, uh, that um, professional speech category. Um, there's also an argument by the supporters of the FACT Act that this should be viewed as uh, commercial speech. Now, com- commercial speech is a uh, category of speech which is does receive First Amendment protection, but it's a kind of a lower um, level than than fully protected speech. And usually commercial speech it refers to language that's um, advertising or proposing a commercial transaction. Um, the argument is made here uh, by the the pregnancy centers. This can't be commercial speech because there's no commercial transaction taking place. These services are provided free of charge. There's no money changing hands, so this is non-commercial by definition. The argument on the other side is that commercial uh, and transaction should be viewed more broadly as as the as the, the types of um, you know provision of service, advertisement for provision of service, whether for a fee or not. Um, so there's that argument, and then there's also an argument about the. Um, the, the 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 framing of of how targeted this policy is and the the state and the supporters of the fact act argue that this is a um basically it's it's this disclosure requirement is just neutrally targeted based on um characteristics of pregnancy centers and it's uh, based on the state's interest in making sure that people who are um uh attending centers that don't have the full range of of services uh, that, that, that are maybe that are available at some places in the state are informed that these services may be available elsewhere um, but on the other on the other side the centers argue that this is viewpoint discriminatory that this is specifically targeted at pro-life clinics and the criteria um, for the application of these uh, requirements was specifically designed so that it would this burden would only fall on the pro-life clinics who were specifically disfavored by the um, by the legislators who were passing uh this uh this legislation so you know a big a big issue in this case will be will be the framing uh, what what kind of lens the the justices view this case through and and how they how they choose to characterize um what's really going on here in this case and 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 um but but something that that uh definitely to watch is this the professional speech argument and whether the court takes this as a opportunity either to um, flesh out the contours of a professional speech uh, category, or um, or perhaps to 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 reject that that uh, categorization entirely. Um, so that's uh, that kind of sums up what what that case is about. And the third case, uh, briefly, on Wednesday um, next week, is the Upper Skagit Indian Tribe v. Lundgren. Um, now the Upper Skagit Indian Tribe, I don't. I apologize. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, it's a tribe located in Washington State, 
And uh, basic background is this: this this tribe under a 1855 treaty, um, they gave up their uh, historical um, traditional uh, tribal land. Um, but in the last several decades, they have been gradually buying back. Um, what was formerly tribal territory. Um, and the intent is to have this, there's a process by which um, recognized Indian tribes can have land taken into trust by the federal government and then that converts it to um, sovereign territory of the Indian tribe. And so their intent is to gradually buy back tribal land and have it taken into trust by the federal government. And since the 1970s, they've bought back about 500 acres, mostly contiguous uh, land. Now, this case concerns a parcel that the tribe bought in 2013. Um, uh, and this is part of the historical um, area that this tribe inhabited, but it has never been part of any uh, formal reservation territory or it has never been trust held in trust uh, by the government for the tribe. Um, now, the, the southern neighbors of this particular parcel are the Lundgrens, so the, who are the, uh, the the other parties to this Supreme Court case, and the issue here is that on the su- uh, near the southern property line of the uh, um, uh, that divides the uh, of the 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 Indian parcel, the parcel at issue that divides their land from the Lundgrens' land, uh, uh, near that uh, southern property line, but but uh, but some some ways north of that property line, there is a fence. That runs parallel to that southern, roughly parallel to that southern property line. Now, the Lundgrens have owned their land, uh, joining the adjoining land since 1981, and it has been in their family since the 1940s. They believed that they owned the land all the way up to that fence, and they said that they and the prior owner of the, this land before the Indian tribe purchased it had all had all treated um, the fence as the dividing line between the two properties. Um, after the tribe purchased the land, they wanted to remove the fence, clear cut down to the property line, and erect a new fence on the 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 property line reflected in the deeds. Um, and so, what happened was the the Lundgrens, uh, to prevent this, brought a adverse possession claim. Um, I, I, they they raised an adverse possession claim against the uh, the tribe. They brought a action to quiet title. So real briefly, adverse p- possession is a legal doctrine that says that when certain requirements are met, um, when someone is in possession of land that they don't have formal title to, but certain requirements are met, then the, they can obtain ownership of that land. And, and there's, there's a, a few different uh, requirements that have to be met. The most, uh, uh, one of the... Uh, um, one of them is that the possession of the land has to be open and notorious, which just means that, that they have to be openly using or possessing that land. It can't be secretly using or occupying the land. It has to be it has to be uh, visible and open that they're doing so, and it has to be for a continuous uh, period of time. And this varies from state to state. It's usually uh, in the in the range of ten to twenty years. Um, uh, I believe it's ten in, in the case of Washington State. Um, but they brought an action on um, a quiet title action. Um, and a quiet title action is just a legal action to resolve competing claims on a particular piece of land. And uh, the court will look at the cl- competing claims to a piece of land and try and definitively determine who has what rights to that land once and for all for all potential claimants. So they brought this uh, quiet title action arguing that under um, uh, a claim of adverse possession, they actually own up to the, the fence. And what happened there is that the the, the tribe argued that they have sovereign immunity, which uh, prevents them f- from uh, being sued uh, or being brought into this quiet title action. 
Now, sovereign immunity is is it's a legal uh, doctrine that says that a, a sovereign government is immune from legal process. So they can't be um, they can't be hauled into court, and it applies in various different contexts. Um, in a sovereign's own court, you know, generally any sovereign government, this goes for the United States government, the governments of states, uh, a sovereign can't be sued in its own courts unless it gives permission, unless it specifically waives its immunity by, for example, passing a law that says people can sue it for certain things. Um, but also uh, it applies in the context of, for example, foreign governments. So a foreign government um, often can't be sued. In, uh, in U.S. courts, if you have a, a grievance with a foreign government, you may not be able to sue them. The particular details vary, um, but often they can't be sued. Now, um, Indian tribes under uh, American law, they're recognized as, as separate sovereigns. They're referred to as, as uh, sovereigns that predate the Constitution. Um, they're often referred to as what's uh, known as domestic dependent nations. So they're, they're, they're domestic. They're they're part of the kind of United States system. They're under the protection or control of the United States federal government, but they do retain this inherent sovereignty that they had that pre-exists the United States Constitution. Um, so they they do have sovereign immunity. It's not disputed that Indian tribes, in many contexts, have sovereign immunity. So here's the argument at issue in this particular case. The the Lundgrens argue. That in this case, this quiet title action is something known as an in rem action. And they argue that in, in, in these in rem actions, sovereign immunity does not apply. Now, what, what does this mean? So a normal lawsuit, the, the typical lawsuit that you think of are what, what's uh, referred to as an in personam action. And that's an action that's uh, brought against a particular person or a particular legal entity. Um, and the court is asserting jurisdiction over a specific Person. So if it's Smith v. Jones, then the court is saying is asserting its authority to to uh, to find liability for Jones in that in that case. But um, some actions that relate to property are, are referred to as in rem actions, and the idea there is the court is asserting jurisdiction over the specific property at issue. And this may be physical land, it may be um, personal property. This uh, in rem is often used to refer to bankruptcy when you have an estate that's being divided between various parties. And the idea is that an in rem action allows a court to assert jurisdiction over specific property, um, importantly, including land that's located within the jurisdiction, the, phys- the territorial jurisdiction of those courts, to exercise control over that land and to resolve all disputes in kind of a final form without worrying that they need to individually have jurisdiction over every last party that might have some related claim. Um, and the argument here by the Lundgrens is that generally um, other sovereigns are not immune in in rem action in rem actions in state courts. So other states or even foreign governments um, can be brought in to an in rem action. For example, if uh, this property in Washington State were not owned by an Indian tribe but were uh, owned by uh, the government of uh, Oregon or some other uh, some other state or uh, a foreign country, uh, Canada, for example, um, then they could be brought in on a quiet title action to resolve the ownership dispute over this land. They argue that the Indian tribes should basically be treated the same way. They say that this is kind of a long-standing um, common law exception to sovereign immunity. Uh, and they say that the Indian tribe shouldn't have superior rights in this circumstance to, for example, a, another United, a U.S. state. Um, the Indian tribe, on the other hand, argues that this is this is just uh, the wrong way of looking at this. They say, in fact, um, exceptions to sovereign immunity, which includes uh, the exceptions for these in rem actions, 
is is uh, is not a matter of of uh, court made um, common law. It's uh, it's a matter for con- Congress to decide. Um, when you look at the uh, foreign sovereign immunity in interim actions, there's a specific exception under statutes passed by Congress that allows that to happen. <clears throat> and um, the the Congress has uh, authority to um, pass statutes that that uh, specify what uh, uh, that Indian tribes uh, sovereign immunity is is uh, waived for certain purposes, but they've never chosen to do that. Um, in relation to these in-rem actions. And they say that it's not, um, it's actually consistent, uh, with other areas where Indian tribes actually have broader immunity than some other actors. So, for example, Indian tribes can be immune, um, from, for actions related to their commercial activities, where, uh, for example, foreign governments are not immune when they're acting as a commercial actor, not as a sovereign. Um, so, so it's not inconsistent that here where Congress has not specifically made an exception, it's not inconsistent to uh, believe that the Indian tribe actually may have a broader degree of immunity in this particular circumstance. So that's the basic arguments here. So the court is going to have to, um, look at, look at this in rem, uh, sovereign immunity issue and, and decide, um, whether, whether there is some, uh, kind of inherent common law exceptions to sovereign immunity or whether this is really something for Congress to tackle, um, which it has not at this point done. So that's it for those are the three cases um, that are going to be argued next week. And that kind of brings us to the end of this live stream episode. The next live stream will be a week from today, Thursday, March 22nd, uh, um, again at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And that's our usual weekly live stream time, Thursdays at 9. But you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Now, um, next week's live stream, there may be a lot going on. Tomorrow, that's uh, Friday, March 16th, the court has uh, has its private conference. And that means on Monday morning, the court will be issuing an orders list at 9.30 a.m. Uh, sometimes there's some interesting uh, orders come out on those those orders lists. Um, and it ca- could include uh, new uh, cases granted for, uh, for next term. So we'll just have to wait and see Monday morning what comes out of that. Um, it's also possible there could be additional opinions in argued cases uh, released next week. If that does happen, it will be most likely be on Tuesday at 10 a.m., right before the oral argument for that day. Um, but again, we won't know. Um, they generally announce uh, Friday afternoon if they expect to be issuing or, uh, opinions the next week. So we don't know yet whether there will be any opinions next week. So we'll see what comes out of that. But there is also... Um, uh, again, the, the three cases that I just discussed will be argued next week. Um, in next week's live stream, if there's anything particularly interesting at oral argument, we may touch on those. But I'll also be previewing next week. I'll be previewing the second week of March oral arguments. And there's currently five cases scheduled between Monday, March 26th and Wednesday, March 28th. The highest profile of those cases is a case called Benisek v. Limon, which is a partisan gerrymandering case out of Maryland. Um, so we'll be talking about those cases next week. There's also one execution scheduled currently for March 20th. So again, that will likely involve some last minute, uh, filings and always a possibility of other emergency orders or interesting developments. So, um, that's kind of what's on, uh, on tap for next week. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I'd love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at countingtofive.com, on the Counting to Five YouTube channel or Facebook page, tweet at Counting to Five, or send an email to Mike at countingtofive.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.